thinking about it that the very first talk I ever did when I was about 15 or 16 in Portadown College was on temptation. And uh, it's one of those things when you're 16, uh, it's very real and uh, very obvious in your life as the hormones are bouncing around your body. And it's one of those things when you're 16, you also think by the time you get old and turn 40 that you'll have dealt with. Um, that, that by this stage of life, when you, you know, that, that you'll have, that you, you, you'll just kind of not have to work work at those things anymore or worry about them and yet as I've said before one of the things I have realized is that some of the temptations I faced when I was 16 at 44 I still face uh, in the words of uh, somebody who once they haven't gone away you know and, uh, and and they're always lingering they might go away for a while and then they come back and so this is a talk that is for for everyone, whether you're 16 or 61 or older, uh, I believe God wants to free us up from some things and to to speak truth into our lives. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put it in his word. And so, Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you, Lord, that you have a word for every person here. Lord, we all struggle. We all have our own uh, challenges. We all have our own vulnerabilities. And so, Lord, your word is designed to lead us into freedom. Your desire is always to lead your people from captivity towards freedom. And I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder what you are tempted by. What is your greatest temptation? You know, there's really kind of two types of temptation. There's those that are kind of more harmless. Uh, Just as I was going out of the house this morning, I picked up the evidence of last night. (laughs) Um, Yes, I plan to take one sweet. And uh, there's seven wrappers there. And I have no idea how that happened. But... uh, there they are. That's the evidence. Uh, some of you, maybe your temptation is chocolate. It's sweet stuff. For some of you, maybe it's more savoury. For some of you, uh, you can't pass a good pastry without uh, indulging. For some of you, maybe it's coffee, cheese. I know people who love cheese and can't stop eating cheese. Clothes. Some of you are a, are, are a shopaholics and you love buying clothes, maybe a particular type of clothes, maybe for you it's shoes, and there's going to be some men nudging their wives right now, uh, because you don't understand how anybody could possibly wear 82 pairs of shoes in a lifetime, never mind have them in a wardrobe. Uh, For some of you, maybe it is uh, stuff for the house, you're just constantly bringing stuff home for the house, and you you say, but it's a bargain, you know, if you, if it was 20 pounds, and you pay fifteen pounds. You didn't save five pounds. You spent fifteen. You need to realise that just because there's five pounds off doesn't mean that you had to buy it. Uh, for some of you, it is your phone. Uh, your phone is your temptation. You're never off it. Uh, you, you, it's constantly sitting there, and every two minutes you're seeing if anybody has messaged you, if anybody has texted you, and uh, if you were to take your phone away from you for a few hours, you would feel like you'd lost a limb. That's some of the more sort of innocent and temptations and then there's the more serious or sinister ones you know um things like being tempted by substances like drugs or alcohol Uh, there's a temptation to lust what you look at which 20 years ago really it was it's always been a problem it's always been there um but in the last 20 years with technology it's become even more prevalent you don't need me to tell you that 
those of you who are parents are constantly monitoring what are they looking at on the iPad? What are they looking at on the computer? 20 years ago, like I said, we didn't have to think about this stuff. And yet today it is so accessible and it is so anonymous that, um, that we just we need to be really careful that, that our eyes aren't continually drawn to things that we shouldn't be looking at. Power, maybe you're hungry for power and status and recognition. You want to be seen. You want to be noticed. Maybe it's shopping. I joked earlier about shoes, but maybe it's actually out of control. Maybe you're constantly spending money you don't have on things you don't need to impress people you don't like. And, uh, and you're just constantly spending money and you're in debt and your credit card and it's got out of control, but you can't help it. You always want more. I heard a story about a poor country pastor who was going through his uh, debit card statement and noticed that there was a bill or there'd been a payment for 250 pounds for a dress in a local clothes shop and he was furious he went to his wife and he said how could you do that how could you spend 250 pounds on that dress and she said I don't know I'm sorry I was standing in the shop and I was looking at the dress and I was looking at it and then I decided I'll just try it on it'll do no harm and uh, it was like the devil was whispering to me, you know, you look really great in that dress. You should buy it. And the, her husband said to her, you know what we do when the devil tempts us? We say, get thee behind me, Satan. And she said, I did that, but I heard him whisper, it looks good from back here as well. <laughs> we all face temptations in different ways. And Jesus taught us to pray this. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. And those two lines go together, but two weeks ago when I was talking about thy kingdom come, I talked about the kingdom of darkness and and Satan's ultimate destiny and, and, and destruction. And I don't want to spend too much time on that today. I really want us to think about temptation. Lead us not into temptation. God, lead me not into temptation. Have you ever thought about that? That seems strange to me. Because you're saying, God, don't lead me somewhere that I know you would never actually lead me. God would never lead you into temptation. So why do you pray, lead me not into temptation, lead us not into temptation? When it's actually against the nature and the character and the will of God to ever lead you into temptation. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us so. James 1.13, it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So temptation in your life never comes from God. So what does this line of the prayer mean, and why would Jesus teach us to pray it? In Greek, the word for temptation is this, it's perasmos. Pyrasmos, and I know you all love a wee bit of Greek on a Sunday morning. Pyrasmos. But it's the exact same word that's also used for temptation, test, and trial. Temptation, test, and trial are all pyrasmos. And it means to prove the quality or worth of something through adversity. It's to put something under pressure to see if it's really authentic. You would pyrasmos a painting. You would parasmos, uh, uh, maybe a vase or, or, or some piece of art. You would, you'd, 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 if you found gold, you'd, 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 you'd put it under pressure to see if it's the real deal or to see if it's fake. So let me ask you this. Does God sometimes test us? Yes. 
We see that throughout scripture, that God sometimes tests us. We see it with Abraham, that God gives him the son he's longed for, Isaac. And then he says, I want you to sacrifice that son. And we see that it was a test. And that through it, Abraham showed that even though the son was so important, that God was even more important to him. We see it with Israel. A few weeks ago, we looked at when we were talking about give us our day, our, this day our daily bread. We talked about how they were given the manna in the wilderness and how they were only to collect enough for that day and trust God for the next day. And this is what God says in Exodus 16:4: I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. I will test them. I'm going to test them here. Psalm 26, the psalmist says, test me and know my heart. So the question is this, what is the difference between a test and a temptation? What's the difference between being tested and being tempted? There's two differences. The first one is this. It's the the source. A test comes from God or it just comes from life and we'll talk about that in a minute or two but a test comes from God or just as we go through life whereas a temptation the source of it is either the devil the evil one or our own evil desires so that's the difference in source the purpose is also different when God tests us he wants us to pass his goal is that we would grow His goal is to stretch us. His goal is to develop us. His goal is to progress us. His goal is to promote us. His goal is that we would pass the test. That is his desire, that he would be able to to see us succeed, that we would realize that we uh, have, have more in us than maybe we realize, and that we'd be able to keep moving forward in faith, that we would trust him through the test and come out the other side successful. When Satan tempts us, The goal is that we would fall and fail. The goal is that we would ruin our lives. The goal is not to take us forward, but to move us backwards or to keep us stuck. The goal is that we would make a mess of things. And that's what it says in in John 10.10, that the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. That's the devil's purpose for your life. You know, let's be honest. How many of us like tests? I don't like tests. I occasionally still have the odd nightmare, and maybe there's something prophetic, and I don't know, but I have the odd nightmare about going into school and facing a test that I haven't prepared for. I, I, I did okay at school, but I hated exams. I especially hated studying for exams. And you were always trying to figure out what was going to be on the paper beforehand because you didn't want to study the whole year or two years of work. So you were hoping that if you got past papers, maybe from GCSEs, or if you could somehow convince your teacher to tell you what was going to be, that you could only study enough just for the exam so that you wouldn't have to learn everything. And within a few minutes of going in, you would know whether or not you'd got it right because you would turn over the exam paper, read the questions and realize that you'd only be able to answer two of the three questions. And the third one, you would have to write the only three things you know about the Second World War but spend 1,500 words doing it because you'd be bluffing your way through it. And so I I don't like tests. I don't like exams. Um, I've never enjoyed them i mean driving test who passed the driving test first time pride come on be proud right hands down who who took two goes second time you're a wee bit more ashamed there and that's like my name's and i'm an alcoholic um three times oh i thought you were twice she hasn't lied to me for 11 years 
told me it was twice. What? Anyway, um, we don't need this. <laughs> no, it's just a, we can deal with that when we get home. Um, and if anyone knows a good marriage counsellor, please do see us afterwards. Um, three times, apart from my wife, Ma, okay, yeah, anyone else? I see that hand. Four times. No. Nobody's going to admit that, are they? Let's. No, you were just scratching your nose there. Okay. It's like Bennett Wilson's auctions. You're afraid to move right now. Uh, you know, you know some, for some of you, maybe you failed because you're a really bad driver. For others of you, it was to do with nerves. That Actually, you're not a bad driver. Just when you got there and the instructor was beside you, you just got nervous. Maybe it's in an interview, the same happens. An interview is really a test to see if you're qualified for the job. But maybe you are qualified, but you just get nervous and somebody less qualified gets it instead of you. We don't like tests. I think we're all agreed in that. You know, there's the odd geek who, in school who always got stressed about exams but secretly loved them. We, we didn't like those people. They were in the chess club. We didn't play with them. The, you know, but think about this. Imagine if there was no test. Imagine if there was no driving test. Like at all, it would be like the, some places in the Republic of Ireland all the time, and that's not a political statement, okay? But in, it used to be in the South, you didn't have to do a driving test, and there's still a bunch of people down there, because we lived there for five years, who have never done a driving test. And can I tell you, it shows. Imagine if there was no such thing as a driving test. Out there would be pandemonium. That car park can be bad enough at times. Imagine if you were going for heart surgery, and the guy who was going to give you surgery, he said, I'm so, uh, how long ago did you study? He says, well, I didn't read. I mean, I went to Queen's for a few weeks, but I didn't really do any exams because I was too busy getting drunk every night. You wouldn't be, you'd be thinking, no, I want someone who's qualified. And you go to the dentist and you say to her, uh, before she's about to drill your tooth, so uh, how long have you been a dentist? She goes, what do you mean a dentist? I just, you know, I went to a few lectures once, but I didn't do the exams, I didn't do the tests. Tests are important, even your MOT, as much as I hate the MOT. At least you know your car is roadworthy and safe, and when it's not, it tells you what you need to fix and that's part of the thing about tests. They show you what you need to fix. They show you where you're strong and they show you where you're weak. They show you where you have victory and they show you where you're vulnerable. And tests are there to actually um, to bring out what's good and to show us where we're deficient. And life is full of tests. James 1 tells us that very clearly. Look at James 1 uh, verses 2 and 3 and also verse 12. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I mean, what is he thinking here? Consider it joy when you face trials. It's very difficult to consider it joy when we face trials because we want to avoid trials. Why would we do that? Well, he tells us, funny you should ask, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, if you want to have depth and substance and stability in your life, if you want to have endurance in your life, you need to be tested. You don't know how to stand firm unless you've had the wind beat against you sometimes. And there's a lot of people who would constantly like to avoid conflict or trouble or hardship, but they've no depth to their lives because only those who have been through difficulty and adversity actually have any depth. And and he says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's a reward. When you are tested, 
There's a reward at the end of it. You take down your L plates and put up your R plates. You pass your exams. You, you move to the next level. There's a reward. And the Lord says when you're tested and you pass, there's a reward. There's a crown of life. The Lord loves to reward his people. Life is full of tests and trials. They're there all the time. You know, trials even. Trials. I was talking to somebody last week who's having a trial for the Ireland hockey team. They're being tested to see how good they are. There's a court trial. The evidence is being tested or examined. Life is full of tests and trials. And sometimes they come from God with a special purpose. And other times they're just part of life. Every day you face tests. Tomorrow if you're working you'll face tests. It could be a deadline to get a project done. It could be that person and work or that boss who you really struggle with. It could be that neighbor who you have difficulty with. It could be a health. Life is just full of tests. We can't avoid them. Life is just, uh, it's every day brings various tests. Maybe you crash your car. Maybe there's bills to pay. Maybe you get sick. It's a, life is just full of tests. How will we deal with them? Life is full of trials and challenges and difficulties and obstacles and opposition. But let us come back to the prayer. Lead us not into temptation. What could that mean? What is Jesus saying here? I think what Jesus is saying, if, Jesus is, if the Bible makes it clear that God never leads us into temptation, I think what he's saying is this. When we go through tests, don't allow the enemy to use those tests to attack us and lead us towards temptation, but bring us through them safely and victoriously. Because tests can become temptations very easily. Pressure, say that person at work who drives you mad, that could be a test, but the enemy uses it to tempt you to absolutely go crazy with them and ruin your witness and work. That bill is a test, but the Lord wants to use the test to see do you trust him, but the enemy uses it to see will you do something maybe a little bit shady to pay the bill, to earn money, to do do something just slightly wrong, just manipulate the figures, just take something out of petty cash. So a test can very easily become a temptation. Don't let the test, I think Jesus is saying this, don't let the test lead us into sin, but give us the strength to pass through it, to trust in you and to come through stronger and matured. And when we go back to Genesis and Adam and Eve, we see that. That God gave them all the trees in the garden, said eat from all of them, but there's only one you can't eat from. That was a test of obedience. He was testing to see would they trust him, would they believe him, would they obey him? Because you can't have relationship without choice. If they were forced to love him, if they were like robots, if they had no choice but to love him, it wasn't real love. And so God tests them. He says you can eat any tree apart from one. That's a test. But then the tempter comes along and he says, did God really say And he puts it before them and he manipulates what God said. And it says they looked at it and it was pleasing to the eye and desirous for life. And as they began to stare at it and feed their minds on it, they were drawn towards it. They could have said no, but the more they listened to the enemy and the more they looked at it, the more they desired it and they failed. The test became a temptation which led to sin. And that's often how it happens. If you look at James 1 again. It says this in verse 
14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. When we were kids, we used to go fishing down the barn and we would stop on the way there and get maggots, which were uh, kind of gross, um, or sometimes you'd get worms. Uh, and the, the purpose of, of maggots and worms were simply this. They were bait. You knew that the fish wanted them as food, and so you would put them on the hook, and the little fishy would come along, and he would see the shiny hook, but he would see the maggot or the worm, and he couldn't help himself. And next thing, he was a goner. It's a bit like uh, recently, in August, uh, out our back, we had a bunch of wasps. There seemed to be this, in August, this huge infestation of wasps appeared. And uh, the kids were playing out the back and we were trying to figure out a way to get rid of them. And Becky got this jam pot with raspberry jam at the bottom, put cling film over the top and put little holes in it. And within a few hours, there were 20 dead wasps at the bottom of it. And for the, 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 the National Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Wasps, you can talk to her later. But, but we would watch as these 20 dead wasps are there, but another wasp would come buzzing around and... Like you think they would look in and see their 20 cousins lying there and think this might not be a great idea right now. I'll maybe go somewhere else. But they would hover and hover and hover around it. And then they would settle on the jar. And you could see they were inhaling the beautiful raspberry smell. And they thought they would be the exception. They thought they would be the one who got away with it. And very soon there were 21 funerals for wasps to be had there. And we think that's crazy. A smart wasp wouldn't do that. But we do exactly the same. We look at people who ruin their lives through adultery. And we say, I would never do that. And then we all know people who we go, I could never have imagined them doing that. Because three years later they're in a place they never said they would go. We know people who ruin their lives through addiction. And we say, oh, I'd never do that. And yet we all know people who, through different steps, do it. We look at people who embezzle money from work and we go, oh, that's so awful. And, and yet, through small decisions and small choices, we end up in a place we never thought we would be. Reminds me of a story... One of my favourite stories by Mike Iaconelli, who used to speak at Summer Madness. And he talks about he was driving through uh, the countryside in middle America one day. And uh, he came across a cow in the middle of the road and had to stop to, uh, to, until the farmer came. It was a little one-lane country road. And the farmer came down to move the cow along. And, and Mike Iaconelli said to the farmer, how did that happen? How did your cow get lost? And the farmer said he's nibbling on a bit of green grass and then he's nibbling on another bit of green grass and he keeps moving and eventually he gets to the edge of the fence and there's a bit of green grass there. and once he's eaten that, there's maybe a bit of green grass at the other side of the fence and he finds a hole in the fence and works his way through and he eats the grass and next thing he's on the road. But he said this, this was the line that got me. He said, cows don't intend to get lost, they just nibble their way to lostness. None of us intend to do many things, but imperceptibly, gradually, through different decisions, through small decisions every day, we can find ourselves in a place we never thought that we would ever be. But it all begins with temptation. Here's what temptation is. There's many definitions for temptation. Here's mine. Temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of obedience to God. Temptation is anything that promises you satisfaction or fulfillment at the cost 
of obedience to God. Now, temptation is not sin. We need to know that because the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And the reason we need to know that is sometimes we think, well, I've been tempted, so I may as well just go the whole hog. You know, some, I think it was Martin Luther, the reformer, who said, there's a difference between the crows flying over your head and allowing them to make a nest in your hair. Sometimes something will pop up on your phone or on your screen and you can't, you, you can't help that. There's a difference between it popping up on your screen and you clicking on it. One's temptation, the other becomes sin. So temptation is not sin, but temptation is anything that promises to satisfy at the cost of obedience to God. And it always seems harmless, and it always seems innocent at the start. Because sin always over-promises and under-delivers. I used to be in sales and marketing. And our goal was always to over-deliver. How you keep a customer for life is over-delivering. They expect here, and you give them here, in terms of product and service. Sin always promises this, but it gives you this. It always costs you more than you wanted to pay, and takes you further than you wanted to go. When we lived in Dublin, our church was in an area with the, uh, the largest heroin uh, addiction problem in, in Dublin. And very often I would be sitting in my office and look through the window and there was a, a graveyard that used to belong to the church but that now belonged to the city council. And, uh, and I would look and I would see people out there trying to find a vein to inject heroin. And it was, it was pitiful watching these people sometimes trying anywhere in their body to find a vein so that they could get a high and soon after we arrived there, I said to somebody from the community, it's interesting that the community was called the Liberties. And there was anything but liberty in it. There was a whole community bound up with addiction. But I said to somebody, how did this happen? How did a whole community, because even 30 years on from the start of it, there were many people still walking around that come into church off their heads. I said, how did this begin? They said, in the late 80s, early 90s, one family brought drugs into this community. And here's what they did. They went around the kids in the area and gave them a, some drugs free and they said try this you'll feel amazing and because the kids got it free they took it and 30 years on every family in that community has buried at least one family member and it all began with try this it'll not cost you anything and now they can't get free of it and that's what sin does it says you can try this it'll not cost you anything it's no big deal sure everybody's doing it you know, uh, you can try it the ones. It'll be fine. Like, it's really, it's no, it's no thing. But here's the thing that we need to realize, that we don't have to give in. You don't have to give in to temptation. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you have to give in. Even though Oscar Wilde once said this, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. But Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And if he tells us to pray that, then there must be a way of avoiding temptation. There must be a way of enabling us to pass faithfully and safely through the trials and tests that we face. You don't have to give in. And Jesus, or, or, or Paul says that, the Bible makes that very, very clear in First Corinthians 10, verse 13. Look at what it says. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. In other words, don't think you're that special. Everyone's tempted in their own way. Everyone has a weakness. Everyone has a vulnerability. Yours might be different than mine. Yours might be more private or personal than mine. But every human who has ever lived has faced temptation. And then he says, and God is faithful. That's a promise. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out. So what does that mean? That means the devil made me do it is never a good excuse. The devil made me do it. No, the Bible says very clearly that you will not be tempted beyond you can bear and you will, he, God will always provide an exit. You can ignore the exit. You can choose not to go near it. But every temptation you face, the Bible makes it clear that there is a way out. There's always a way that you can win. James 4, 7 says this, Submit to God and resist the devil. Surrender to God, submit to God, and as you're doing that, resist the devil. First Peter 8 and 9, 5 verses 8 and 9 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he can devour. Be alert. And uh, it says, resist him standing firm in the faith. Resist him. James says resist. Peter says resist. Stand firm against him. You're not powerless. You're not a victim. Through Christ you can say no. You can resist. You can stand firm. Notice resist and stand firm are defensive words. I think what he's trying to communicate is don't go looking for the devil. There's some crazy charismatic Christians out there who go devil hunting, who go demon hunting. They're always, everything's a demon and they're always looking for demons to cast out. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says don't go looking for them, but when you're attacked, stand firm, resist, don't give in. Don't go looking, but when they're there, don't be afraid. Stand firm, resist. You're not powerless, you're not a victim. Because of Christ, you can stand firm. One more thing in this section, and I'm nearly done. Be aware of your weaknesses. Be aware of your weaknesses. That's one of the things I've realized as I've gotten older, is to be aware of my vulnerabilities. We all have them. Yours are different than mine. And here's what we've got a tendency to do. We've got a tendency to compare sins and compare temptations. And we either go, mine's far worse than theirs. They don't have the struggles I have. If they had my struggles, they would know all about it. Or we think, mine's nowhere near as bad as theirs, a dirty, rotten heathen. You know, like, I mean, what have they been up to that they're tempted by that? When actually all of us are capable of all sins at all times. It's by the grace of God that we're not there. But there's none of us are immune. There's none of us that can stand in judgment or pride over anyone else because we all face different temptations. Maybe yours isn't lust, but maybe it's pride. And you're proud that you don't have to deal with lust. Maybe it's not stealing, but maybe it's greed. And you're proud of all that you have accomplished and all your possessions and you show them off and you think, I would never want to be like that poor person. When actually they're incredibly humble and the Bible says, blessed are those who are humble for the Lord will exalt them. We have different temptations, but we need to be aware, what is your thing? And you will know. You mightn't tell anyone else, but you will know where your weakness is because you've been battling it for years probably. It's a little chink, a little vulnerability in your armor. It's the place where Satan is strategic and he knows by watching you and by listening to you again and again, he can get you there. We all have those places of vulnerability and weakness. And once we know them, then we learn to protect them. Once we know where they are, we can put things in place. But if we don't have the self-awareness to know the times, the places we are when we're most susceptible and most vulnerable, we'll just go with the flow. Where are you when you sin most? What are you doing? What's going on with you? There was a little thing I read recently and it, it said the times we're most susceptible can be summed up with the acronym HALT. And I've added two more to it, but HALT is when we're hungry, we're vulnerable. 
When we're angry, we're vulnerable. When we're lonely, we're vulnerable. And when we're tired, we're vulnerable. And I would say tired is a big one. I know for me, when I'm tired, that's one of the times when I'm most spiritually weak. When we're tired, we're vulnerable. Can I add two more to that? When we're hurt, we're vulnerable. When we're licking our wounds, when we feel like people have, when we've got the short end of the stick, we're vulnerable. And the last one is this, and this again is, is from my own life, I've seen this, but I think it's many of us. When we're bored, we're vulnerable. The first thing God did with Adam in the garden was give him a job. Why? Because God knew particularly men need to be busy. When we read about King David, it says at the year, at the time of year when all the kings go to war, David was on the rooftop. All the kings were at war, but King David had decided to stay home. He was bored. He's on the rooftop. He looks down. And what does he see? A woman having a bath. And surprise, surprise, she's called Bathsheba. And he calls her up. And from that point onwards, David's life went downhill. When we are bored, there's nothing wrong with rest, but there's a difference between rest and boredom. When you're bored, the enemy will find something for you to do. Know what the triggers are for you. Is it when you're lonely? Then don't, don't isolate yourself from people. The enemy knows that you're drawn to certain things. Notice the pattern in your life. Start to see the pattern. When this happens, that's when I fall. When this happens, that's when I'm susceptible. When I'm around these people, that's when I end up doing silly things. And start to put things in place. And here's the lies that we tell ourselves. I deserve this. Just once. Nobody will know. It's not as bad as what others do. Everyone does it. Sure, I can just ask God for, for forgiveness. And maybe you can. But maybe that's a test. And if you fail the test, maybe God wanted to do something new in your life, wanted you to take up a new position, wanted to move you forward, wanted to progress you. And you fail the test so you stay stuck where you are. So yes, you have his grace, you have his forgiveness. But you don't know what the consequences of that have been. The year before I went into theological college, I'd already been accepted and uh, I deferred for a year and I was working in Savin to start theological college and uh, I was working for Unilever as an account manager. And about uh, halfway through that year, perhaps, I was over in Birmingham at a conference. Uh, It was a trade show at the NEC and we were there all day and our hotel was, I remembered really clearly, it was 20 years ago now, but our hotel was directly across the road Actually, it was, yeah, 17 years ago. A hotel was directly across the road from a a club of exotic dancers. They'd call it a gentleman's club, but I don't think there was anything very gentlemanly about it. And and for five days, our our hotel was... On the last night or the middle of the week, I remember some of the guys came in. We were tired from being under the trade show and we were on our feet all day. And the guy said, we're all heading across the road, Craig. Do you want to come with us? Was that a test or was that temptation? I don't know. I would say it was both. I I think it was both. I often think about that. And I said no. Really, at that stage, my my theory is this, and I think this sometimes, if Jesus came back, would I want him to find me there? And that was a clear no. And so I said no, and, and that was it. It was no big deal. The guys went, whatever. I stayed at the hotel. But I often wonder if I had said yes, what would have happened? Would my life have been ruined from that point forward? I don't think so. Would God have forgiven me? 
Yeah, he would. Would my witness in that company have been ruined? Absolutely. When six months later I went and resigned because I was going to start training for a minister, do you not think somebody might have said, remember when we were in Birmingham? Might it have affected the blessing of God in my life from that point forward? I don't know. But I didn't want to find out. Yes, God will forgive us. But the Bible makes it very clear we never use God's grace as an excuse for sin. God's grace keeps us from sin. It's not a license for sin. It would never have been worth it. But sin has to look good. It has to look attractive. Or else it would have no power. I used to think sin was this ugly, gross thing. You know, I, I often joke, sin isn't like broccoli, okay? Like, like sin isn't like squid. Like, those things have no appeal to me. Maybe you're a huge broccoli fan. But I, I, there's nothing would tempt me to eat a big bowl of broccoli or squid. Or, or Like, sin is like chocolate fudge cake. Sin is like salted caramel. Sin is like a 12-ounce fillet steak done medium. And the vegetarians in here are having demons coming out of them right now, but you're not strong enough to do anything about it. Um, you know, sin looks good. It's enticing. It's appealing. It's attractive. It lures us. It draws us. It appeals to our senses. But it leads to death. Look at James 1 again. After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it was fully grown, gives birth to death. When you are tempted and you give in to it, it's almost like an impregnation takes place. This temptation comes along, you say yes, you come into agreement with the devil. Something starts to form there and it begins to grow and it begins to gestate. And over time this becomes fully grown and then it eventually destroys you. And that's the goal all along. You never thought this little thing could become this big thing. Like even now, you know, when I think about, you know, I, I look at my son Elijah these days and I just feel like, how did, I, I was looking at a photo of him when he was born recently and, and you think, how did that wee thing become this big thing? You just kept feeding it. Isn't that right? You feed it and it'll grow. I'm thinking about that film, Gremlins, remember? The little mogwies. That's the pronunciation. Never, ever feed them. They look like wee cuddly things, but you fed them and they became something completely different. Whatever you feed grows. Whatever you feed might look innocent, but it can take over your life. And that's what the Bible teaches us, that sin looks attractive, it looks seductive, it looks enticing, it has to, but it leads to destruction. It destroys families, marriages, churches. It damages your future, it damages your health, it damages your mind. It steals your joy, your innocence, your peace, your confidence. It leads to regret and shame and heartache. It keeps you from walking in all the good things that God intends for you. And the most effective weapons we have, there's three of them, and I'm going to go really quickly. The first one's God's word. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Three times he comes back and he quotes God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he says. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you know enough of this book to be able to quote it when you're tempted? Fill your mind with the word of God. Psalm 119 says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When you feed your mind on God's word, it not only renews your mind, but it allows you to speak it out against temptation. The second best way to resist temptation is through prayer. 
And that's why Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray Lead us not to temptation. Prayer makes you spiritually sensitive. When you pray regularly, you become aware. It's almost like it's, you walk into a place and you just sense the ickiness of sin. You, you're confronted by something and you just go, Ugh, I, I don't want that. You become more spiritually sensitive when you don't pray. That sensitivity gets dulled. And here's the third way, and this is maybe a surprising one. Joy. Joy is a great antidote to temptation. Because here's what temptation is. And sin is. Temptation and sin are counterfeit joy. See, the devil is so unoriginal. He's never had a creative th- done a creative thing in his life. But he takes something good that God intended for us for good and he twists it and manipulates it and turns it into something bad or tries to get us to use it at a time when it's harmful. And if he's trying to get you to find joy outside of God, if he's trying to get you to find satisfaction and fulfillment through disobedience to Christ, then the best way to overcome it isn't to try to overcome sin. I've tried that. It doesn't work. Willpower does not work. Trying harder does not work. You know what works? When you're so satisfied in God that sin holds no appeal. That you're so satisfied with God and you're so close to God that you look at it and you go, why would I exchange this for that? That's what works. Find joy in life. Find joy in friendship. Find fulfillment in your marriage. Find satisfaction in nature. Find thrills in sports. Enjoy your work. Enjoy church and serving and giving. Love other people. Enjoy food and fun and kindness and generosity and creativity and all the good things. When you find a full life of joy, it's very hard. I studied marketing. And the thing I learned about in marketing was this. You will never sell anything to a person who is satisfied and happy. You have to create dissatisfaction. You push on their pain points about what they might be missing. You show them that if they could only have this, their life would be better. They would be more handsome. They would have a six-pack. Girls would chase them down the street if they had links off. You know, oh, like you've got to create this illusion in their minds that this will make, and that's what the enemy does. But if you're happy with your life, if you're satisfied, if you're content in God, and you find your joy and your pleasure in Him, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him, says John Piper. Then why would you want to go for the junk? Sin is counterfeit joy. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says this. If you put up that quote here. It would seem to us that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. You see, God gave you desires. We seem to feel like any desire for pleasure is sinful. God gave us the desire for pleasure. He doesn't find them too strong. He finds them too weak. And he says we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. God gives us real joy. He gives us real fulfillment. He gives us real satisfaction. He says, here's a beach, here's a holiday, here's the sea, and we're sitting making mud pies. Remember going to Dublin Zoo once, and Elijah was so captivated with a picture of the elephant that it was hard to get him to the real thing. Some of us are so captivated with the, the, the counterfeit or the fake, and God said, I've got the real thing over here, if you would just walk towards it. And here's what we never forget. Jesus is victorious. 
See, I'm very conscious when we talk about temptation, when we talk about sin, when we talk about Satan. Some people get scared, some people get nervous. And yet we have absolutely no reason to, for Jesus is victorious through his death and resurrection. He has defeated Satan and sin. Satan has been defeated and one day he will be completely destroyed. Read Revelation 19 today when you get home and you will see Satan's ultimate destiny. Don't be afraid. You are not powerless. Yes, be aware of his schemes. Yes, resist the devil. Yes, stand firm, stand strong, stand, stand, stand. But don't be afraid. You are not powerless. A few weeks ago, I'll finish with this story. A few weeks ago, I brought Elijah to martial arts. He, he wanted to start. And I brought him up to Cork Crean Community Centre in Portadown. And I had this surreal moment as I walked in. It was the exact same building that 31 years ago, 32 years ago, I had done martial arts in, in the same room. But it was even more surreal when the instructor walked out because it was a guy who I used to train with 32 years ago who was now teaching them kung fu and kickboxing. And I began to remember those days and why I'd started it. And when I was 11 years old, I, I was around in Jervis Street, just outside the YMCA one night and put it down. And there was a guy called Trevor who was a few years older than me. And Trevor came along, and I don't know what the reason was, but for some reason Trevor decided to, to hit me in a smack in the head. And he punched me in the head and knocked me off my bike, and I hit the ground. And from that point forward, I was scared of Trevor. And if Trevor was around, I wouldn't go out. And if Trevor was there, I'd go the other way. And if Trevor was there, I would make sure I, 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 was terif- I was terrified and I wouldn't go anywhere near Trevor. And then I started doing martial arts and I progressed quite quickly. And within about a year and a half, I was the Northern Ireland champion in my category. But I was still scared of Trevor. And I remember one night I was in Brownstown Park. And somebody came to me and they said, Trevor's or you'd better go. And I don't know what happened that night, but something snapped within me. And I said, I'm not going home. Where is he? And I went looking for Trevor and I couldn't find Trevor anywhere. And I went around all the playing fields and he was nowhere to be found. I went into the community center. I couldn't find him. There was a storeroom where they kept chairs at the back. It was just dark. And I found Trevor in the corner crying. And his words were, don't hit me. I will not tell you whether I did or didn't, but it was a year before I got saved. So excuse me for that. (laughs) But you know what I think often? How much of my life I spent fearful and hiding in misery from someone who was afraid of me because I didn't realize the power I now had. I spent my life in fear and hiding and isolation, not enjoying the life that I was intended to live because I was fearful of someone who was afraid of me. The only power he had over me was my memory and intimidation. And I want to say to you that you're not powerless. You're not a victim. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. He's given us his authority. And so you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be fearful. No matter what has happened in your past, I want to say to you, you are not a victim. Do not live as a victim. We live in a victim culture. We choose not to be victims, but to be victorious through the Christ who is victorious. And we are in Christ and he is in us. And through his victory, we have victory. Through his authority, we have authority. Through his power, we have power. And so we go out there and we are aware of the devil's schemes. 
We go out there and we understand where we're weak, but we do not hide in the corner. But we go out there with the power and authority of Christ to bring light to darkness, hope to hopelessness, and life where there is death in Jesus' name. Let's pray. And then we'll sing.